So Money Episode 208, Ryan Holiday. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. Summer Friday, rerun Friday. Today's guest is Ryan Holiday. I had this wonderful guest on earlier this spring. And Ryan is a thought-provoking media strategist, best-selling author of three books, and he's not even 30 yet. I'm so jealous. Most recently, his very successful book is called The Obstacle is the Way, The Timeless Art of Turning Trials into Triumph. He has been responsible for a number of manipulative stunts. Hmm. And media controversies has been accused of being a media manipulator, which he writes about in his first book, Trust Me, I'm Lying. He's only 27 after dropping out from the University of California at age 19 to apprentice under Robert Greene, who's the author of The 48 Laws of Power. Ryan went on to advise many best-selling authors and multi-platinum musicians, including 50 Cent and Tim Ferriss. Ryan also served as director of marketing at American Apparel for many years, where his campaigns ended up being used as case studies by Twitter, YouTube, and Google. It was also written about in Ad Age, the New York Times, and Fast Company. Ryan now works as the media columnist for the New York Observer, and his work has appeared in Forbes, Fast Company, the Huffington Post, the Columbia Journalism Review, Thought Catalog, and Medium. Lots of takeaways from our convo with Ryan, including his formula for creative success that lets you turn obstacles into opportunities. Why he chose to quit college. It wasn't an easy decision and how stoic principles can vastly improve your professional and financial life. We also talk about the value in negative thinking, a little counterintuitive, but kind of makes sense when Ryan uh, breaks it down. Here we go. Here is Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday, welcome to So Money. So great to have you on the show. Yeah, it's really good to, to be on. I'd love to start just giving listeners a little bit of background about how you first started out. I suppose we could go back to when you were 19, dropping out of college. You were at UC Riverside? Yeah, I was. I was, uh, I was in school. I was writing for the college newspaper, and I'd sort of leveraged it into these kind of informal mentorships with a bunch of people that I sort of really respected and wanted to be like, mostly writers. And, um, you know, I, I segued from there into an internship with one of them in Los Angeles. Then I had another internship at a talent management agency in Beverly Hills. And and it, I'd always sort of thought that I might drop out of college one day, like, uh, you know, but I, I never sort of really considered what that would be like. And and one day, one of the people I was working for said, hey, like, look, you've been doing this amazing job. Um, there's, We'd like to hire you right now. We don't want to wait for you to graduate. What would you think sort of about not going back to school? And and I had to sort of put my money where my mouth was. And, and I ended up dropping out a few weeks later. And now I'm here. Were you concerned about down the road that not having a college degree would hurt your chances of getting further employment? Or how did you did you even think that far ahead? Yeah, of course. I was terrified. Um, that, that, that was the main 
But so it's interesting. There's all these resources that help people get into college. There's very few resources that help people uh, who have decided to leave college, right? Because it's sort of this thing that you don't do unless, um, yeah, you just don't do it. Like I'm, I'm sure it was ter- terrifying for Mark Zuckerberg too. Am I making the right decision? Um, how's this going to go? Uh, you know, what do my parents think? Um, I was really worried uh, that, yeah, it, it would it would be some you know mistake that I was making, and then you know I one of the one of my mentors was like, look, you know, when I was in college, he was like, I I he caught some disease, I forgot what it was, but he got like a very he had a very serious illness, and he spent a year in the hospital, and he was like, so it took me five years to graduate from college, and do you know how many people know this about me? None. He was like, I took a year off school, and it's not even it's not even visible to the outside world. And and that was sort of when I realized that dropping out of college and deciding you would never return to finish your education are two very different things. And sort of by taking it day by day, it was much less intimidating. And it just happened that I've not needed to go back, but I suppose I could tomorrow if I, if I decided I wanted to be a lawyer or something. Absolutely. And we should mention that when you dropped out at 19, it wasn't to go you know, um, work at Starbucks. It was, you know, you, sure. were, you had an amazing opportunity to apprentice with under Robert Greene, author of The 48 Laws of Power. So this was in some ways a no brainer because the access and the experience that you're going to get was unmatched. I mean, you're not going to learn that in, in, in college. Yeah. It's funny. I wrote an article called like why you should drop out of college or something uh, a few years ago. And it's like one of the top Google results for, for <laughs> that phrase now. So I get a lot of emails at like two in the morning from college students who are really miserable and I I feel for them. But most of the time I hear from them, they say, I don't like college. I'm thinking about dropping out. It's never, I don't like college, but I've been doing this thing on my own and I'm thinking about making a go at it. What do you think? And so for me, it was, look, if I was graduating and I had this job opportunity, I would have considered my college experience a total success, right? It's like if you went to college, to play professional or to play uh, NCAA basketball and then a a team wanted to draft you, you would go, okay, I'm going to think about this seriously because it's exactly what I was training for. Um, It's not, hey, I'm going to quit school and then dig around and figure out what I want to do with my life. And yeah, that's a really great point. I think that sometimes college is the right place for you and for others, it's not. And it's really about weighing your, you know, and if, like exactly, if you've got a plan that you want to execute and you want to yeah. take that opportunity, go for it. College will always be there. That's kind of the one nice thing. Sure. Well, look, I, I think, you know, chances are most of the people that are listening to this are not considering dropping out of college right now. But I think it, it holds true for a lot of different options. Ha- the thing that everyone is doing is a good default, right? Like, so going to college is a good default if you don't know what you want to do. But you should be exploring all your other options and ideally trying to build revenue streams or, or interests or passion projects that you, that could become potentially viable down the road. It's like, if you hate your job, you don't quit your job and then try to explore what else you could possibly be good at. Ideally, you want to use the, the position that you have to fund this other potential venture. And everyone knows you're much more attractive as a candidate or, or, right. or anything else while you still have the other job, not when you've cut, when you've burnt the bridges behind you. Exactly. Your mentor, Robert Green, had a saying, and I found this on your website, that it's all material. 
And yeah. he basically means that everything happens that happens in your life can be used for something useful. What's the greatest example of this in your life? Um, yeah, I mean, look, my my first book, which is sort of expose of the media culture, was very much a result of my uh, my my first job or one of my big jobs at American Apparel, sort of dealing with a very controversial and provocative client. The way I've always thought about it is the things that happen to you are both educational experiences, and then if you're a creative person, they're also the experiences that fuel your work. You know, there's a good saying like writers live interesting lives. Uh, it's very hard to be an interesting writer if your life is boring and you haven't experienced the world because you can't you can't communicate that reality to a public. And that that's something I've always thought about is how do I take this seemingly negative or unpleasant or unenjoyable experience and figure out whatever benefit is inside of it, even if it's just you know, experiencing something miserable and channeling that miserableness into creativity, there's always something that you can get out of whatever you're going through. Uh, you can definitely achieve success. It's teachable, right? Success is teachable. Yeah. But creative success, if you want to be an author, if you want to be a painter, if you want to be, uh, you know, a podcaster even, like sometimes is creative success in the creative medium um, not so linear, um, how would you best go about teaching that? Yeah, I mean, I think people over overstate the importance of like the craft itself. So like someone wants to be a writer, they go and they get they spend, you know, a lot of money getting an MFA uh, to, to learn how to put words together. Um, I find that it's much easier or a, a shortcut is to have something really, really interesting to say or to have experienced experience something that no one else has experienced and then be able to communicate that to the world. There are, there are memoirs and stories that I would read if they were written in crayon because they're so good, right? Meanwhile, there's other people who are these amazing sort of technicians that couldn't keep you interested to save their life. And so I think that's the same thing in any creative experience. It's, it's less about how good you are at, at, manipulating the camera or the paintbrush or or the you know the clay or whatever it is although these things are certainly important and you have to love that craft and you have to put a lot of hours in but if you don't have something unique or interesting or that the market is interested in it's sort of all pointless and do you think the market today is a little more forgiving that you might not have all the you know precise tools and that you might have some misspellings and that you might not have the, the most beautiful website but if your if your content is riveting that's what's going to really make you successful. Um I would definitely agree with that. I would also say that not only is the market more forgiving, it's much larger. So it you're not having to you're not having to go through gatekeepers who are who are very judgmental to get to that audience. You can connect directly with those people. So I think that's one benefit. Um, and, and yeah, the other thing is, as art has gotten continually cheaper, right? Whereas a hardcover book is $26.99, an, an ebook can be 99 cents or it can be free. Um, people have, it's not that people have lower standards, but they're more willing to take risks on something and they're less likely to feel ripped off. So I think it lowers expectations somewhat. In a good way, it allows it allows you to develop as a writer more cheaply. Instead of having to toil away on a manuscript for 10 years, you might be able to get it out there in a year, 
get feedback and improve that manuscript in front of an audience as you're having customers. So I think that's really exciting too. Your latest book is called The Obstacle is the Way. And the title stems from a quote by uh, Marcus Aurelius, who was a Stoic philosopher. And you're a big um, follower of Stoicism, right? Yeah. Well, so Marcus Aurelius is, he's a philosopher, but he's also the the emperor of Rome. He's the most powerful (laughs) man in the world who happens to have this sort of deep love for philosophy. So his his book, Meditations, which is probably, you know, my mm-hmm. favorite book of all time, is this totally unique historical document where you have this man who's who's struggling with an immense amount of responsibility, also, you know, responsible or wrestling with sort of absolute and and limitless power. And he's writing these thoughts down every day about how to be better at his job, essentially. And this document survives to us and we can read it. And and my book is, the, you know, the specific line I, I based it on is this quote from Marcus Aurelius where he says, you know, the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. And really he's just saying that everything that happens to us is an opportunity to practice excellence in, in one form or another. You might, you know, you might be trying, I might be trying to do this podcast with you. We could have technical difficulties. So I can't be good on the podcast, but I could exhibit patience or um, I could not get upset or I could decide, hey, you know, this happened. Now I've got to do this other thing. Uh, I'm not going to waste this time. It, it's it. Everything that happens to us, big and small, is a, is a chance to to practice what the Stokes would call virtue. And so that's what the book is about. I love that. I love that. Uh, I recently read, you're writing now for The Observer, and I recently yeah. read one of your pieces about the surprising value of negative thinking, um, sure. which is kind of counter to what we were just talking about, you know, virtue and um, stoicism. Yeah. But there is a benefit in, in, to negative thinking. It's it's called like a pre-mortem, and it works a lot in the business world. It's like anticipating all the bad things that can happen so that you can plan accordingly. But do you recommend this in, in personal life? Sure. I mean, so what this... This is a very much part of Stoic philosophy. What what they talk about is um, it's it's sort of managing expectations, right? We tend to, as humans, think that optimism is like the the end all be all. You want to think about what can go right, and it's almost like you're tempting fate to consider what could go wrong. What the Stoics are talking about is is how do you sort of live in the present moment in such a way that you are not, and, and but also understand what could happen in the future. And so you're not, you're not caught off guard when, you know, Murphy's law intervenes. So the, the pre-mortem is this exercise that, that actually is very popular in business where you run, you run through all the ways that a project could fail or that a deal could go poorly or, um, or, or whatever. And the reason is not to, to, to then be depressed. It's to say, okay, how can we protect ourselves against these things? Or how can we, um, what is our insurance policy if, in fact, this does happen instead of naively assuming that the world is going to go exactly like you want it to go? And, and this is, again, not a recipe to be depressed. It's, it's so you're not, you're not crushed when, uh, you know, um, things happen a little bit differently than you might have liked them to happen because you'd consider that possibility already. It's not a right. surprise to you. Hope for the best, plan for the worst, as they exactly, say. Exactly, exactly. So now, Ryan, I've I've listened in on a number of your um, interviews, read uh, your uh, articles online. I, I I had a hard time actually figuring out like what kind of a financial person you are, which is why actually I'm excited to now transition okay. to the so money 
questions. I ask all of my guests this, uh, and I start with, what is your financial philosophy? If you have kind of a, a mantra that helps guide your your thinking and your decision making when it comes to money, what is it? Um, I, that's an interesting question. I, I've I've been wrapped up in finances a lot recently, just doing my taxes, and then <laughs> and then I I bought a I bought a house last week, and so it's been it's been a little nuts. I mean, for me, what I've always thought about is having a somewhat unpredictable profession that is writing um, and, and being self-employed, um, the, the more you can manage your needs, the less you need to be sort of obsessed about income and you need to be obsessed about money. And so, I, you know, I try, to, I try to think about my money in, in what it allows me to do. Uh, namely, does it allow me not to have to think about money very often, right? Because I'd rather be thinking about my work. So financially, I'm always trying to sort of protect myself, trying to keep my expenses as low as possible, and then also take advantage of, of sort of passive income streams that, that, that allow me to make money while I'm sleeping. Does that sort of answer your question? It, I, I'm it, happy to chat about it. However, No, it happens. does. And I think what initially when you talked about needs, I think that's so spot on. But I think the challenge for a lot of people is that they don't know what their needs really are. They, they, they mistaken their wants as needs, you know? Yes. And so how do you really narrow it down? Um, yeah, no, I, th- I think that is a big problem. Not only do people not know what they need, they, they get distracted by what other people need and want mm-hmm. and end up buying stuff that's not actually important to them that forces them to make a lot of decisions. So like for me, when I, when I dropped out of college, it was it was nice. I had a lot of savings, so I could take that risk. But also, had let's say I had taken a ton of student loan debt on, or um, or yeah, let's say I taken on a, a ton of student loan debt. It would have been very hard for me to leave college. And then when I got my first job and I was making a lot, I was making really good money. If I had bought a house right away, I wouldn't have been able to leave that job to write my first book. So. I'm 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 thinking about like okay what is actually important to me what what is it that I like doing that I would miss if I didn't have and then the rest um I just try to ignore as much as possible What kind of exposure did you have to money growing up what would you say was your your greatest money memory as a kid uh, my dad was very, very financially astute. So my dad was a police officer, but he was also a real estate agent. So he worked these two jobs. He did a ton of investing. And then he ended up retiring. He and my mom retired in their mid-50s, and they they live in, in Maui now. So they, they did pretty Whoa. well. They um, did the, they were actually on the beach with Mai Tais in their retirement. Yeah, no, exactly. exactly. So I've always been thinking about that, too. Like, I know friends that, that make a lot more money than me now, um, but... I would ima- I would venture to guess that they have a lot less money than I do, right? Mm-hmm. So when when I'm when I'm uh, looking at the money that's coming in, I'm always I'm trying to sort of put walls between it and myself as as quickly as possible, automate as much of my finances as possible, and invest as much of it as possible. So then I'm able to take risk. I'm able to be very risky in my profession and in my in my art. Because I know at the end of the day, I'm not betting my life on it. I'm just betting, um, you know, the, the whatever the risk is inherent in that creative project. I know I'm not going to starve to death. What did your parents think when you dropped out of college? Um, you know, they did not take it well. They did not take <laughs> it well at all. Uh, it, it was it was an unpleasant experience for us 
things are better now. But it's funny. I found I only found out after that my my father had actually left college for a time as well. I I think there was a sort of a not wanting you know wanting better for your kids. I mean, I think they understand now in in a, in a way that maybe they couldn't then. But, you know, nobody wants to be the parents that had a kid that uh, was the first one to drop out of college. Did you feel a lot of pressure to be successful because you wanted to really prove that this was the better decision? Um, I, I won't say that that hurt as a motivational factor, but I, I, if, if you're motivated by external approval to do what you do, that's only going to take you so far. I think for me it was really about, like, sort of getting these things off my chest, like, doing and accomplishing the, the specific, like I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write books. That's what got me up in the morning. And that, that's what allowed me to get through the difficulties that I went through rather than like, Oh, I'll be able to prove you all wrong. Mm. Someday. Yes. Yes. But uh, yeah, it, it does help to have that. You know, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't it. hurt. Yes. Well, share a financial failure. What's, Big or small, and you know what did you learn? What happened? And what's the silliest, craziest, dumbest thing you ever bought? Um. Well, let me answer the first one first. So I, I was we we just bought an, uh, a second house. Uh, we're moving. We're going to keep the other one as a rental. Uh, like last week, buying a house as uh as so I the way my my situation has always worked is I. I've always I've always had self-employed income as a writer and as a freelancer and, and and having my own company. But then some of my client, like one of my clients, American Apparel, I was a salaried employee, and so I started looking for a house after I'd left American Apparel. When if I just looked like two months earlier, it would have saved me probably the biggest nightmare of my life, which was applying for a mortgage as a self-employed person. Yeah. Um. And, and so that that has been a a total and complete nightmare. Um. So I, I think, you know, it, it's funny when you're self-employed, you manage your business for yourself, right? You try to reduce your taxes as much as possible. You organize it in a way that's easy for you to manage. You sort of do all these things and then you find out and, and you could be doing that really, really well. And then when you find out when you apply for a loan or, or you know, you're, you're setting some uh, business up or whatever it is, all of a sudden now your internal system is now being subject to somebody else's system and those don't match very well. So that, that was just a complete and total mess that pro- I feel like I could have, I could have, if I took the amount of effort that I did into getting this loan, I probably could have earned the money somehow. Uh, it probably would have been easier for me to rob a bank than it was to, <laughs> was to get the money above. above maybe easier, but maybe not as successful. Yeah, yeah. Um, in in terms of my worst financial decision, I I don't nothing nothing like totally jumps out at, at me. What I my sort of strategy when I like if I get a big check or I sign like some big deal, I usually buy something f- like small that's frivolous that I've always wanted. You know, like let's say under a thousand dollars, and then it sort of gets that feeling of like money burning a hole in your pocket out of your system, and then the rest I can. I can hide it away and not think about it and sort of let it, let it do what it does. Um, so, so thankfully I don't have any like, Oh, I can't believe I, you know, lit $20,000 on fire in such a way. (laughs) Thankfully. Um, it's good that you treat yourself a little bit though. That's, that's like, that's like the equivalent of going on some crazy diet and saying, I'm never going to have a piece of sugar for the next six months. You're going to, you're going to fail. 
Yeah, right. No, I mean, the I eat um, a sort of a, a mix of like a paleo diet and the and Tim Ferriss's four hour body. And, and part of that is like this concept of having a cheat day where like one day you sort of have all the stuff that you wanted because the, the other six days more than balance it out. And I think it, I think there's some logic to that financially. Um, you know, obviously you don't, you don't go out and buy a, a new car because you were, you know, you're feeling reckless today. But, uh, you know, if you're, if you're resisting, like Ramit Sethi talks about this a lot, mm-hmm. if you're resisting the urge to buy lattes all the time, you're not going to have the financial sort of wherewithal and energy to do the smarter, longer term, bigger decisions, which are ultimately going to matter much more to you than saving $3 on a, on a cup of coffee. Yes. And Rumi's been on this podcast. Tim's been on this podcast. And I'm, I'm really honored to say that you're now on the show. Oh, thank you. What would you say? I mean, I'm glad you got that loan, by the way. I know yes. that it was um, like pulling teeth, but you were triumphant. Speaking of, what would you say is your so money moment, a time where you really had an amazing financial win? It could have been uh, your first book deal. Um, share that with us. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I mean, my my first book deal was was obviously the most amount of money that I've ever gotten in one time. At one time, I remember I remember when I was dropping out of college, my the job offer that I got was I I, I had sort of more than one thing at the same time, but but the job offer I got was was thirty thousand dollars a year, and I remember thinking, what am I going to do with all this money? Like I remember thinking that. And <laughs> well, now, when you go from zero to thirty, it's a lot. Yeah, of course. I remember, like, I remember actually thinking that. And then, you know, now, of course, like, uh, you know, I might work on a project that, that pays that much money. Um, but, but I remember thinking, like, what am I going to do with this? And, and thankfully, you know, I didn't do anything stupid with it. I, I thought, okay, this is a great feeling to have. The, the sort of feeling is enough. I don't then have to sort of go make it a reality. Like, my, my thinking was always like, if, if this ends tomorrow, um, can I go back to how my life was before? So I think about this now with stuff like, like when I travel for speaking, they like, they'll, they'll go like, Oh, do you want to fly first class and stuff like this? And I always, I try to turn those things down because I'm trying to keep my lifestyle in such a way where like my baseline is as low as possible. So again, I can be, I can take risks. I can save money. I can be smart with money and not feel like, okay, this is the minimum that, that I need. Um, for my ego or for my basic sense of comfort, the, I think the lower you can keep that nut or that sort of basic worldview, the more fr- strategic freedom and options you have um, for various situations. Where did you learn this? Because I think so many people do the opposite. Did you have an encounter with someone or people or uh, read this somewhere that this is a better way to go at it? Like, did you just experience this somehow and you're, it really turned you off? I mean, I definitely read, you know, the, some of the people that you were talking about and I learned a lot there. But, but I mean, this is also part of stoicism, right? Stoicism is, is a philosophy based around the fact that we don't control the world around us. We only control our sort of own behavior and how we respond to that world. And, you know, if, if you go around thinking that, you know, it's only up from here or that, uh, you know, sort of, uh, external things like material goods or, or, or wealth, that these things say something about you as a person or that they're the sort of highest goods that you could, you could pursue. You put yourself in a really difficult, precarious position because not only did you spend a ton of time and energy to acquire something that you then 
it, it then turns out to be not as meaningful or as satisfying as you, you might have told yourself it was going to be, and you deal with that existential disappointment. But then when it turns out that not only uh, did, the, did the thing that you, you worked so hard for not mean what you think it means, you don't get to keep it forever. I Also, things can, ha- you know, fate can shift, your business can go into a rut, uh, the economy can crash, whatever, and now you don't even have that thing anymore. And so I'm always trying to focus um, on the things that are immune to those sort of uh, twists and turns, which I guess would be, you know, sort of pride in your work, you know, your actual output, that's relationships. But I try to I try to spend my time and energy on those things because people can't take them away from me and they're they're not, you know, finite. And it sounds this philosophy may work really well for those who have volatile lives, you know, especially those who are entrepreneurs. Um, would you say it seems yeah, because I, that's where there's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, I, I would I would definitely agree to that. And, and I would say, look, even if you're not an entrepreneur, the world and the economy is more volatile than it than it's been before in terms of. Look, the, the chances of you working at the place that you're working at until you retire are much lower than they were in the past, right? Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, you know, people have, have sort of been lulled into a, 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 a false sense in, of security. But then also, I think like what, what happens when you read history and you, and you study these things is you see like, look, you know, and on the other hand, things are safer than they've always been before, right? So you might not work at the same company until you die. And so maybe you shouldn't sign on for, to buy a huge house or really expensive cars or whatever. But the good news is the chances of you losing every penny that you've ever had in a financial depression is much lower. The chances of, you know, the America collapsing completely and being overrun by a foreign enemy are, are much lower than they were 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 2000 years ago. And so by by sort of understanding these dual risks that on the one hand risks are higher than maybe society would tell you and on the other hand they're much lower than maybe your sort of reptilian brain might tell you i think puts you in a place where you can you can pursue what you're excited about not be scared and anxious all the time and and also though not become sort of dependent on someone else for your sense of security and along the way, what are some of your top habits for maintaining that outlook? Um, I guess specifically, I'm curious about financial habits that really give yeah. you a great ROI. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm obviously I was saying I'm really big on automation, sort of automated savings. Um, I'm I like to when when I have large chunks of money, put that chunk of money into some sort of investment vehicle that produces real returns, but that I can't touch for a long time. So like, you know, that on the very simple end of this, that would be something like a CD, right? If you put $10,000 in a CD, it might not make as much money as it would in the stock market, but you're less likely to be able to touch it. And so sort of locking it away forces you to, to, Oh, now I got to earn another $10,000 if I want to have $10,000. Right. Right. On the other hand, I, I, or sort of on the further end of that spectrum, you know, they're like, I do uh, like a, a fair amount of sort of trust deed lending as an investment project, which, which has a, you know, a, a two year minimum or a 10 year minimum. Same goes with, uh, with if you do like angel investing or startup investing, these are going to be investments that are probably not going to return uh, any of your money for an extended period of time. 
And so I'm always trying to sort of clear out money for those kind of investments. And then I'm not sort of sitting on a pile of cash, but I know that it's there in the future if I ever need it. So I'm, I'm trying to be responsible, but also be aggressive while I'm young. So I think that's something that I think about. Um, I, I also, I'm trying to think what else might be interesting. I'm, I'm into buying the things that you want and need um, that are going to be sort of dependable and last a long time. So it's like, look, you know, are you going to buy a crappy pair of shoes that you've got to get a new pair in six months? Or could you spend $200 on a pair of boots that are going to last you for five or 10 years? Um, and, and by paring down, like, you know, there's the Steve Jobs story of him, you know, having 30 of the same sweaters <laughs> or Obama wearing the same suit every day. You know, they're on the one hand, they're not wearing cheap, crappy clothing. On the other, by reducing the amount of thinking that goes into the outlet or in, into the outfit or, or, or the clothes or the car or the house or, or whatever, they're reducing the, the expensive opportunity cost that a lot of people waste on thinking about what they're going to wear or chasing different fashion or trends. Like I, I, I try to buy convenience in that sense because at the end of the day, the, the finite resource that we have is our time, especially if you're a creative person. It's not just your time, but it's your it's your sort of mental energy that you can put towards your craft. That's so true. It's reducing decision fatigue is what that does. And yeah. whether it's your clothing choices, even what you eat. I've had guests on this show that um, practice what you're saying and they say, you know, I eat the same thing every day. Some people think that that's boring, but for me, it just, it just, it's one less thing to worry about. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can make, like I was talking to someone who's, who's much more successful than I am. And he, he was, he was moving, uh, like right now he works, let's say five minutes from his, the company that he owns, but he's moving like 30 minutes away and he really likes this house, but he's realizing that he's now losing 30 minutes a day commuting. And he did the math and it was cheaper for him to, to hire a driver so he could work in the car on the way to the office and not have to sacrifice time with his family or time at home or time from the office. He was sort of able to do that math. And as you become financially successful, these are these are difficult things to consider. Like coming from a relatively blue collar family, the idea of like paying someone to drive you around is like, <laughs> you know, insane um, and, and, and seems very reckless. Um, but if it if it's good for you and it actually makes you more productive, you have to treat yourself like a like a business in that sense. Like mm -hmm. um, if if there's a, a meeting that's going to make you money, it doesn't matter that the plane ticket is five hundred dollars and you're just going there for for an afternoon and flying home. You know, provided that you can you can do the math and justify these things. But that can feel hard if you come from a more conservative or or, you know, like my parents. Um, both as civil servants, um, their time is not was not valuable to them, right? Because if they if if they work two extra hours that day, they don't make two extra hours of money. Whereas for me, I'm all about thinking about reducing the amount of time on on extraneous activities because that allows me to focus on my work and be more more productive and make more money. Makes total sense to me. All right, Ryan, we're almost wrapped here. You've been a lot of fun. So awesome. money, fill in the blanks, shall we? Okay. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say I made this a big number because some of my guests yeah. make this much money in like um, a couple of years, but a hundred sure. million dollars. What's the first thing I would do is? Uh, probably nothing. 
I, I don't. I honestly don't think it would substantially change my life. Not because I have that much money, but there's there's almost nothing that I want that I don't have. That is a great place to be in. I have to say, the one thing that I spend my money on that makes my life easier or better is. Um, I would give two answers. One, um, I have a personal assistant who's who's amazing and helps uh, me handle stuff. And then the second is, uh, if there's ever a book that I want. It doesn't matter if it's $500 as a rare book on Amazon that, that's been out of print. I buy it, and sometimes I read them. Sometimes it turns out that I didn't want the book, and I I give it to Goodwill after. But, like, I have a policy. Like, books are the single best investment that you can make, um, period, and I don't let anything get in the way of those purchases. And I remember reading about how you wrote three books in three years, and one of your tips was – constantly be reading you have to constantly be feeding your creativity yeah that's where all the material is right all the examples all the stories all the inspiration my biggest guilty pleasure that i spend a lot of money on maybe it's a 500 hundred dollar book but what else would you say um i don't cook very much so for my wife and i like our probably guiltiest pleasure or like least justifiable thing on our expenses is uh, like if we feel like going out to eat we go out to eat Good for you. You know what? If you got the money, it's a great thing. Sure. One thing I wish I had known about money growing up is? Um, It's a lot easier to earn than you think, right? Like when you have parents that are on a sort of a salary and a pension, like what they make is what they make, right? There's no chance that one day they're going to come home and have made more money in one day than they made in the last year. But as you sort of get out of that mindset and you, you, you meet entrepreneurs or creative people, you realize that like a single or a tiny decision can have massive financial implications. And in some ways, this makes money a lot less intimidating, especially when you see uh, people who you wouldn't have expected to be very, very successful have made or done more than you had ever dreamed that you could do. I couldn't agree with you more. We live in a culture that really obsesses over saving money, and that's an important component of financial health. But we have almost forgotten this whole conversation about earning, sure. earning more, because we're such a salary-oriented nation, you know? Yeah, I, and I think that's – it's hard to it, – it, that feels less inclusive because in, in some respects that's – like everyone can save, right? Making lots of money is, is much more sort of meritocratic. And so I think to say like, oh, look, if you don't do it, it's because you weren't working hard or you didn't do something right. That's like more that's less politically correct. And I think that's a harder conversation for people to have. That's a good point. When I donate money, I like to give to blank because um, I like donors choose because um, you get to pick the projects out. I almost always pick something book related. Um uh, then the other only charity, I, I, I give tons of stuff to Goodwill because I'm always trying to clean out crap that I have. Speaking of, that's reminding me, I have some bags that's been sitting there in my go. closet for months. And lastly, Ryan Holiday, I'm so money because. I'm so money because. I don't know. I would, I would never say that about myself. <laughs> well, I know some guests are very uncomfortable with this phrase. Uh, but if, if it were to mean that you just, you know, you're making a positive difference, you're, you know, so money is really just a fill in the blank for sure. all things positive. I mean, maybe I would say it because I get to do what I love to do and get paid for it. Perfect. And we love you for doing it. Ryan Holiday, thank you so much. No, thanks for having me. This was great.
If you would like to learn more about Ryan, his website is ryanholiday.net and he's on Twitter at Ryan Holiday. All this and more at somoneypodcast.com. And there, if you want to ask me a question, click on Ask Farnoosh and submit your question for me every weekend, Saturday and Sunday. I answer your burning financial questions. And if you'd like to connect with me one-on-one, listen, I love connecting with y'all one-on-one. It's one of my favorite things to do all week, a 15-minute money session, you and me, how to qualify, log on to iTunes, leave a review for this podcast, And every Saturday, I select one recent reviewer to earn that 15-minute money session, to win that 15-minute money session. So hope to hear from many of you. Thanks again for listening. Hope to see you right back here tomorrow for Ask Farnoosh. In the meantime, have a great So Money Friday. 